Well, welcome again. <laughs> you know, when we think of the greatest evangelists in history, we often, or we should, think of the Apostle Paul, right? There's probably not a greater evangelist in all of recorded history than the Apostle Paul. And yet you see often reflected in his letters these statements that tell us of the reality that there is no human being, right? None of us actually possesses the power or the ability in ourselves with our own talents, our own gifts, to adequately serve our almighty God and do justice to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A and the reason is because the, the closer one gets to Jesus, the more that we actually know him, the more humbled, the more grateful that we become. We become aware of the fact that we have to rely upon the very Christ that we proclaim to give us the power and the confidence and the boldness to proclaim him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? He sort of blurts that out in the midst of talking about the gospel. These things that he's talking about are the wonder and the glory and the beauty of proclaiming Jesus Christ and teaching the full counsel of God. And there was no one more qualified than him. And he just stops and says, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is no one, not even me. The apostle Paul is what he's saying. Well, this morning, as we continue in the gospel of John in chapter 1, we are going to turn to one of the most important witnesses to Jesus Christ in human history. And when we look at him, we get lessons of both humility and boldness in his life. We see boldness in him proclaiming Christ in all that he commands and never wavering at all. But you see great humility in him in recognizing that Jesus must increase and he must decrease, that honor and glory belongs to Christ, and he deserves the focus, never a person. So in John, we have spent our time so far in the prologue, right? And it took us back to eternity past when we considered the weighty topics of the Trinity and the eternal existence of the Son. And we looked at his work in creation, and then finally the incarnation, God the Son in the flesh, but you'll remember, sort of stuck right in the middle, as John is talking about Christ in all of his majesty, he briefly shifts to another witness. So if you look at verses 6, you will see this witness mentioned. He's not an insignificant man. Think of the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater among men. So he's very worthy of our study this morning. Well, the Apostle John sort of stuck in there in the middle. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. And those verses, remember, told us three things about John the Baptist in his testimony. First, he was not the light. He was not the Christ. Second, he was sent from God. He was a prophet who was to bear witness to Jesus. And third, he would bear witness so that all people might believe in Christ for salvation and eternal life. Now, we know that not a one of us is John the Baptist, no, truly not called as prophets of God. But the call to go and share the saving gospel of Jesus Christ is given to everyone. 
right? Jesus commanded, we know this well, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them and teach them to obey all that he has commanded us in Scripture. And that doesn't really depend on who we are, whether we have lots of friends or no friends, what our status is in life, what we think our abilities are. None of that really matters. And when you look to John, you see a man whose life would actually end in imprisonment and actually execution for his ministry. And he did not have any of the marks of success that we would put on a famous preacher or even ourselves, right? He was not held in high regard by the people of his day. And neither are faithful Christians held in high regard in our world today. There was nothing flashy or appealing about John's dress or his appearance. There was nothing watered down in his message. He wasn't trying to win friends to himself, right? It was direct, it was truthful, it called for repentance. There was nothing soft about it. There was only an urgency to go out and to call people to repent and prepare themselves to meet the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And so in John, as we start looking at him, we will see modeled that it doesn't matter what people think about us, only whether we're pointing them to Jesus, the beauty of Christ. Remember, Jesus, he reminds us, he warns us, he says, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And that's part of the problem we get today is we get latched on to the messenger when we need to latch on to Christ. And we can do that in reverse. We want people to like us. We need them to see Jesus. And Jesus said if they persecuted him, they'll persecute his followers. If they criticized and lied about and hated him, they'll do the same to us. It just doesn't matter what the world thinks about us as followers of Jesus, but they need to see Jesus Christ and hear of him when they look at us and they listen to us. It really is quite amazing when you take a step back and you think about how God chooses to bring men, women, and children to saving faith in Jesus, to, to grant them new life. He could have sent angels to appear to us. He could have written personal messages to us in the clouds calling us. But he sends us. Weak as we are, flawed as we are, he sends us. It's through sharing the gospel that people turn from sin and place their faith in Jesus, right? Romans tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so it takes witnesses to speak that word. So in our text this morning, the Apostle John is going to focus on the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, this gets difficult when you're preaching it because there's two Johns at play here, right? The John, who is the author of the gospel, the Apostle John, and now we have John the Baptizer, right? That's, that's really how that's translated. We'll call it John the Baptist because that's the way it's here. But when I go through this, I am going to refer to John the Baptist most of the time as John the Baptist or John. So don't get confused. If I'm talking about the Apostle John, I will say the Apostle or the Apostle John because he's not really the feature point here. So let's read beginning in verse 19. We'll go through verse 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts, that you would use it to penetrate deep into us and change us, uh, make us ever more conforming to the image of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we pray that uh, we would have understanding, that we would see the glorious uh, beauty of our Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in the introduction to the Gospel of John, you might remember that we mentioned how the Apostle John assumes that you have some familiarity with the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, right? And you see an example of this right here in this text this morning. There is actually no mention of who John the Baptist is or, or what his ministry is. And so without that, if you just launch into this, you really would have no idea why the text begins with the priests and the Levites, the religious leaders coming from Jerusalem to question John. So let's take a step back and, and remind ourselves of the events that lead up to our passage this morning so that we hold it in the right context. And we're going to go all the way back to Israel. Right? Israel was God's chosen people, and they had a very privileged history as the people of God. They continually strayed, right? But God sent them prophets. He continually came back and sent them to speak to the people and call them to repentance and to holy living so that they could be a nation of priests among the world, so they would see the glory of God. All of that had happened in the distant past, though. By now, here they sit in the first century, and that had become ancient history to them. God had been silent. After the prophet Malachi, 400 years had passed and God had not spoken to the people. And now the Jews are sitting under the authority of Gentiles, under Roman rule, a, a horrifying thought for them. And they were anxiously awaiting deliverance. They look back to Malachi. Malachi has four chapters, and, and in the fourth chapter, God gives them this promise. Verse 1, he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So just like we now look out at the world and we eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ to usher in a new heavens and a new earth and call us home, the Israelites are looking at that day, sitting under pagan rule and waiting waiting for the Messiah to come. And we know that they misinterpreted who the Messiah would be. They wanted a Messiah to come and deliver them from Gentile rule, right? That was their primary focus. 400 years, generations after generation go by, and they're waiting, and things seem to be getting worse. 
and then an angel of the Lord appears. And he appears to a priest named Zechariah. And if you want, turn to Luke. We'll read a couple lengthy portions from Luke. <coughs> he appears to Zechariah in the temple. And we have to remember, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, was barren. And they were now far too old to conceive a child. God works in wonderful ways. This is very reminiscent of Abraham and Sarah, right? In Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the angel said to Zechariah, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, John was then set apart from conception to be the forebearer of the good news that the long-awaited Messiah had come. Uh, he is known in the New Testament as the last of the Old Testament prophets because he is foretelling the advent, the coming of the king, the Christ, the savior. So God sets him apart from conception. Now in our minds, we kind of think of the privileged ones, the called to be set apart in a life of prosperity. They would be around a power center. They would go to the right schools. They would make a name for themselves and then maybe God would use them. But that isn't at all the way God works. It wasn't a life of prosperity and ease that prepared John for the task. He didn't make him rich. He didn't make him powerful. He didn't make him famous by worldly standards so that God could somehow use his platform, to use a word we use today, to then go reach the people. God, God doesn't need that, right? Into the wilderness, John went, where he lived. In Matthew, we're told just that John wore a garment of camel's hair. That is a very uncomfortable thing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. So not in a palace, just eating bugs, right? That's, that's how John grows up and he lives there, Luke tells us, until the day he began his ministry. But Luke records that when the time was right, the word of God came to John in the wilderness and that commenced John's ministry. And his message then was very simple and very direct, repent. Turn away from your sin, turn to God, prepare your hearts, Christ is coming. Mark records it this way in Mark chapter 1. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Well, it looks pretty successful. And one of my most, I think, disliked terms today when people talk because of the way it gets used is he must have been giving a winsome message then to these people, right? They were all coming. There was a number who repented and they were being baptized. It must have been a soft, welcoming message because you remember who's coming to him. Who's coming to him are people who are Jews, they're not the Gentiles coming out to him. They are the religious. They are the people of God. They are Jews. They believe they're already in the kingdom of God. The Messiah is coming uh, not to judge them, but to lift them up above the other nations and to punish the Gentiles. And out they come to John. Now, 
I want to give you a taste of his preaching. If you're still in Luke, turn to chapter 3. I want to see, we're not going to dwell on this passage, by the way. I just want you to see this because our focus this morning is on John's humility. It's on John's humility. But what I want you to see in this is humility does not mean, it never means watering down the truth of God's word. Humility never means compromising or being unwilling to stand your ground on the word of God and call people to repentance and holy living in faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Or calling people to live in accordance with his word. That is not a lack of humility. We're going to see John's humility, but listen to his preaching. Remember again, he is calling out to Jews coming out of Judea, out of Jerusalem. They are religious people. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's telling them, it does not matter if you're Israelites, you must repent and turn to Christ. Get ready, he's coming, right? And the effect that this had on people was to turn their hearts. It tells us that they began to repent and be baptized, and they eagerly awaited Christ as their blessed hope. Luke 3.15 says the people were now in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Is he the one? And so it's no wonder with crowds now flocking to hear John and to be baptized by him, some even wondering and talking about uh, among themselves, perhaps even claiming that John was the Christ. It's no wonder that the religious authorities in Jerusalem would send out a delegation to question John. Who are you? What are you doing? And this is where our story picks up. They need to question him. Now, one of the most important lessons, as I said, that we can learn from the prophet who Jesus called the greatest among men is actually John's humility. And so we'll watch for this as we go through the text. It begins saying the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to question John. Now, the apostle writing is most likely referring to the Sanhedrin. He uses Jews in various ways throughout this gospel. Because though they were under the authority of the Romans, the Sanhedrin was the ultimate governing body among the Jews. And so they were in charge of all of this religious rights and would question. And there were many false prophets that actually arose, so questioning wasn't bad. But they were also very, very wealthy. They were landowners. And so they always lived with this concern that something would upset the Romans and that they would come take away their wealth and their power. You see this when they criticize Jesus later. That's one of the reasons they want him crucified. So they send a delegation out to question John. They actually have two problems that come through in their questions. There's a political problem, of course, that in John and his followers, as they get riled up, especially those who think he's the Christ, it could attract the undue attention of the Romans and they might lose their power. They might lose their wealth. But there's also a religious problem that they send them out for. And the religious problem is actually pretty simple. It was fine to call Gentiles to repentance. They were sinners. They were were those people, right? 
they weren't Jews. It was quite another thing to be preaching and proclaiming to the Jews that their Messiah was about to arrive and they were unclean. They needed repentance. They needed to prepare their hearts for the king. That was very different. And we will make application as we go, but this is a mistake the church can often fall into today, of course, right? We know how comfortable people can be when we're working through the word of God and we're talking about the sins of those people, the world. It is quite another thing when God starts speaking and he starts stepping on the toes of our idols. We get mad. We get uncomfortable. We want to do something about it. And so you see that. And so (laughs) these religious leaders are coming, self-righteous men, and they ask John, who are you? Now, the first question we can sort of read into it by the way John gives his answer. Uh, They were wondering, are are you claiming to be the Christ? John emphatically denies that he's the Christ. He wants everybody to know, no, right? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. It's just a, a weird way of saying it, but it really emphasizes it. I am absolutely in no way the Christ. Well, so they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, we're going to go back to Malachi. The very last words that God had spoken 400 years ago are the last two verses of Malachi. And here's what it says, and they would have all been familiar with this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So they're looking for Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet of God. And the one thing he's known for, as you go back in, the ki- in Second Kings, is calling for repentance. Calling Israel to turn back to God and leave their idols aside. Now what happens in Second Kings chapter 2 is that Elijah is taken up. One of few men who does not die, right? He is taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. Everybody knows this, and so everybody listens to the prophecy of God, and it was thought that he would return bodily from heaven, Elijah himself. And they look at John, and he bears many similarities to Elijah. His bold preaching, very similar to Elijah, and his appearance, dressed exactly the same way. Both wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around their waist as they wandered through the wilderness. And John says, no. No, I'm not Elijah. And he's correct. He is not the literal Elijah returned from heaven to prophesy like they were expecting. But consider something else. This is, some people can get hung up on this thinking there's a problem. Remember what the angel had told Zechariah. John will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus said of John later, if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. And and what Jesus meant by if you're willing to accept it is, listen, if you had been willing to accept the message that Jesus is the Christ and that he saves uh, by placing your faith in him, then you would have seen in John the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi, that what he was proclaiming is what Elijah was proclaiming. So uh, Jesus is giving us the correct interpretation of, of that passage, that one similar to Elijah would precede the Messiah, and he did. Jesus explains much later in Matthew 17. He says to his disciples, is who he's speaking to, he says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, 
and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John's right. He's not physically, literally, Elijah returned from heaven, but Jesus gives us the correct interpretation. But here I think there's another point that we can take from John's answer. At least we can consider this, right? John may have been answering literally. He might have been sort of taking them very literal. No, I'm not Elijah, but he may also just not have seen it. They may not have seen it in himself, right? God may not have revealed that to John. John's focus was on glorifying Jesus Christ. It's, at, it's not at all uh, outside the realm of possibility that God didn't appear to John when he spoke to John in the wilderness that he didn't say, John, here's the message I want you to proclaim. By the way, just so you know, like you're the guy. Build yourself up. You are the Elijah. Now walk with confidence. It's quite possible God didn't tell him. I, his focus was on Jesus, not his position or his status. And I think what we need to take from this is John's view of his own significance in life or, or the importance of his ministry didn't really matter. He was simply called to be faithful to the ministry that he was given. And, and that's true of every single one of us. Right? When Paul instructs Timothy, he writes to him, he's a pastor, he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry, not somebody else's. We are called to fulfill our ministry. It can be as simple and difficult as being faithful parents or employees, whatever God has called you to do in life. But you just have to stop and ask yourself, because we can get hung up on the wrong things, where is the true significance of your life coming from? And if it's not coming from Jesus, if you're looking for something in the world to give that to you, then our focus is wrong because you can consider it a, a different way. When Jesus conferred this high praise on John, that he was the greatest among men, that he was the Elijah, where was John? He didn't hear it. John had already been thrown in a dungeon and already been beheaded for calling evil evil, for calling out Herod's sin. He was long gone. John's estimation of the value of his contribution to the kingdom of God really didn't matter. He, he had no way to measure that in his life. The significance of what we do for Christ is known and, and only given by Jesus, right? And in that we can and we should take great comfort because we're not compared to other people. We're not called to live other people's lives or to fill, fulfill their ministry, uh, right? The first Corinthians 7 says each person is to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her and to which God has called him or her, right? It's from Christ, our Lord, that we hope to one day hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, not anybody else. Now, John gets a few more chances to glorify himself with the next questions. So we turn back to our text. If John's not Elijah, they ask the next question, are you the prophet? And he answers, no. Now, they don't ask if he's a prophet. They ask if he is the prophet. Right? What they're asking is, is he the prophet that Deuteronomy 18 is putting forth? Where God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, there was disagreement among the Jews on how to interpret that passage in the first century. They didn't know if that prophet, there was a school of thought that that prophet was going to be kind of a reincarnated prophet. Some thought it would be Jeremiah. Some thought it would be another prophet. But there was another school of thought that said, no, 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 that is the Messiah. That is the promised one to come. 
Now, we know that the answer that it is referring to Christ is the correct answer, and we're not gonna turn there. If you want to later, it's Acts chapter three and Acts chapter seven, it gives you the answer. John simply answers, no. So they said to him, who are you? But we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, I think this is the part, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe I'm just being honest with myself, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but we would feel a great temptation here. A great temptation, right? None of us like to be overlooked, especially when we want people to listen to us. We, we want them to respect us in some way. So you see them ask this of John, and, and if you put yourself in John's shoes and you've got these self-righteous men who don't know what they're talking about coming and questioning you, you would want to say something like, listen, I am John. Do you know how I got the name? I was miraculously conceived. God himself picked my name. That's why I'm called John. By the way, I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit, a gift that has not been given to any of you. I speak from God because he speaks to me. You, you need to listen to me, right? Do something to defend your honor. Today we might be like, you know, what school you went to or th that kind of stuff. But do something to defend your honor in the face of these ignorant men. Our pride tells us wrongly that they will listen and they will hear the words and respond to them if they just understood how qualified John was or we are. But that's not really right. It sort of begs the question, well, can there be a balance then when we go out in the world? Can we bolster our pride? Can we look for the respect and approval of people and serve Christ? Not really. Are there two different motives there? We're instructed instead, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Paul had every reason to boast and brag. Probably the most educated guy walking around, Jesus had appeared to him, and he was constantly being put down. And he says in Galatians 1, am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That you can only serve one master. It can't be yourself. And you'll see time and again through Scripture, and John really exemplifies it, humility clothes the most powerful witnesses for Christ. John basically says, I'm nothing. You're, you've got the wrong focus here. Christ is everything. Who am I? Well, he gives the answer in verse 23. He said, I'm a... I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now you remember, going back to how the prologue began, the opening verses of John, uh, the apostle John identifies Christ as the word. Now John the Baptist is saying, I am simply the voice, making him known. It's the same calling we all have, isn't it? Right? To refuse attention to ourselves and to live and to speak in a way that always points people to the beauty of of Christ, not the messenger, the message, and the message is Jesus. Now the point of John quoting this passage of Isaiah, it's Isaiah 43, is that it gives actually no glory to himself, gives, gives no glory to him as the preacher, none whatsoever. John is essentially saying, I'm not an important person, right? I'm not the, I'm not the Christ, and I'm, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I am just a voice. I am just a voice and I have one thing to say. Repent, believe, the Christ is here. Now all four Gospels quote 
this passage in their reference to John. And the message he was sending was just as clear then as it was when he wrote, uh, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah, right? The people all understood this. He's telling them, your hearts are like a desolate wilderness. And the analogy that's being put forth, uh, they would have gone. They knew that when a king planned to visit, that work parties would go out and they would create a clean, level road to be prepared so that he would arrive in safety and comfortable arrival. That's not unique to them. We do the same thing today. If you look at preparations that cities make when a president or another dignitary is visiting the city, you will see they go through those streets, they clean them up, including removing people that they don't want around. They fill up potholes. Traffic is redirected in different directions, and that journey is pleasant and smooth for whoever that dignitary is. And the challenge John is making to them, the challenge to everyone in the world today, is to repent of sin. Seek Christ. Seek his righteousness. Let him make you new. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. It's not just words. It's living in and for and with Christ. John is essentially saying to them, you keep looking at the wrong person. You're looking at the wrong person. I am the voice. You need to look to the word. If you want to be a witness for Jesus, your primary task is to point the person away from you and, and toward God. Because we know, I hope we know, we can't give any lasting hope or meaning or peace or salvation that a person needs. But we do know who can. And we can share that. Now, when you look at what they're asking, all these questions up to this point, they're, they're based on people's observation of John's life and his ministry. He looks different. He's doing different things. He's boldly preaching. And there's a lesson for us there, too. Our lives as Christians and as a church, every church, should cause people to look at us and ask, why are you different? What do you have? Who do you represent? And it's why we're told in the Bible, keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And when they look at us, they're going to see how we love and discipline our children as parents. They're also going to see how we obey and honor our parents as children. They're going to see how husbands love their wives. They're going to see how wives respect their husbands. They will see how we deal with hardship or, or wickedness or meanness when it's directed our way how we handle blessings in life. All of this and more is observed by people when they watch us. And we just have to ask over and over again, does it drive them to Christ? You consider the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was writing about evangelism, and he says the first great step in evangelizing is that we should start with ourselves and become sanctified. When the man of the world sees that you and I have got something that he obviously has not got, when he finds us calm and quiet when we are taken ill, when he finds we can smile in the face of death, when he finds about us a, a poise, a balance, composure in the most difficult situations, and a loving, gentle quality, he will begin to take notice. He will say, that man has got something, and he will begin to ask, what is it? And he may want it. So there was something different about John. Now the religious leaders saw this, but they were not ready to submit to Jesus in repentance and faith and worship, right? They continued to be puzzled by him, though. They didn't understand his ministry that was going on in his life. And so they've received John's answers. 
and they still don't make sense. He claimed no position of honor, no position of greatness, no inherent authority in himself. So it left a more serious question for them to answer. Verse 24 adds this little parenthetical, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. It doesn't mean that they're all Pharisees. Most of the Sanhedrin was actually Sadducees, but there were Pharisees on it, and they were one of the leading parties in Judaism. And these were men that placed a great focus on the study of the law and on rules, right? And we'll run into that later where they sort of get that wrong, but they were the experts on religious practices. So it's not surprising that they would get mentioned here as this further question comes up. Then why are you baptizing? You're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet. On whose authority are you baptizing people? Right? Th this would have been very disturbing because baptism was a, a known practice to the Jews. Uh, this was something done quite frequently, but you have to understand a couple things about the baptism of John and why it was so alarming. Now, this is, this is not yet Christian baptism. It looks the same, but this is something different. Uh, the first thing is that everyone understood baptism was limited to Gentile proselytes, people who were Gentiles converting to become Jews. Gentiles were considered unclean. They needed to go through all kinds of ritual purification, and baptism is the symbolic washing away of all that was unclean under the law of God. And the second thing is that baptism, quite unlike today, was self-administered. Right? The Jewish convert baptized himself or herself. It was like taking a bath in front of everybody to demonstrate uh, this great commitment you had made. And so you can imagine the shock when the religious leaders sitting in Jerusalem heard the report, back to Mark 1, that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John and were being baptized by him, confessing their sins. Oh, baptism was never for Jews. They're already God's people. They don't need spiritual cleansing. They don't need repentance. They don't need baptism. Now, obviously, very wrong. But then they look at John, and he's not even a priest. The priests are responsible for ritual cleansings. John's not even a priest. And here he is administering baptism to Jews to symbolize their repentance. It's all wrong from their perspective. What we need to take note of is how John responds to this question. And notice what he does not do, right? He does not immediately get defensive about his ministry for calling people to repent and be baptized, right? He doesn't, doesn't sort of get angry about it. He doesn't claim any personal authority. He doesn't tell them to go away because he's got authorization from God himself. But finally, and this is important to note too, he never stops. He doesn't back down. He's, he's doing the right thing. He knows he is. He's following God's instruction. So he keeps on preaching and he keeps on baptizing and you see that through the rest of the Gospels. But he does humble himself and he points to the ultimate authority. Doesn't claim it himself. He points to the ultimate authority, Jesus Christ. It, it begins in verse 26 where John answers them, I baptize water. Look guys, it's just symbolic. It's water. It's the Jordan River flowing by here. Baptism is important because it points to the work of God in Christ. But your focus is all wrong if you're just focused on baptism. And then he points them to Jesus. Right? He says, but among you stands one you do not know. 
You are asking about baptism, but you're asking because you are ignorant of the Savior. It, it is a very sad example of unconverted but very religious men. They did all the bells and whistles, but they weren't believing. Right? These were men who would claim they were waiting for the Messiah, but they are unwilling to submit to him when he came. In the words of Romans 2, describing these people, it says, they rely on the law and boast in God and they know his will and they approve what is excellent and they are sure in themselves that they are guides to the spiritually blind. That's these men. Jesus refers to the same men in Matthew 23 over and over as blind guides leading people to destruction. Focused on all the wrong things. You can remember back to John 1.11 when it tells us right, that he came to his own, but his own would not receive him. And, and that's essentially what you're seeing here. But John's words obviously apply today. We live in a post-Christian world. People uh, can tell you that they know some things about the Bible. Usually they're entirely wrong and they're based on some YouTube commentator or something that's criticizing but Christ is still standing among us and many, many people choose to ignore him. And he calls to all the weary, everyone who's trying to work their way into heaven under some system in vain. He's calling to all who are lost and toiling for hope and joy and darkness. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And people won't listen and they won't hear. They seek all the things of the world, money, pleasure, cultural approval, even religion. But they will not humble themselves and know Jesus. And John saw this, and we need to see it too. When people are hostile towards us, towards the witness, towards Christians, towards the gospel that we're joyfully proclaiming, when they're hostile to us, they're only reflecting that they don't know Jesus. Don't take it personal. They're just... Reflecting they don't know Jesus. They don't know of his glory. They don't see his beauty. They don't see his purity. They don't see his holiness. They can't see the dreadful and eternal effects and consequences of sin and rebellion against God. They don't understand the faithfulness of God, right? They don't understand the love and the mercy and the grace that God makes available to all who will turn to Jesus Christ and cast their cares on him. They don't know and they say they don't care, but it's really that they don't know that he died to pay for our sins. And he lives and he reigns and he rules today. And that brings us to our last point. It's the final point of John's response. He doesn't appeal to his authority. He appeals to the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who reigns today. He says, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal... I'm not worthy to untie. We're used to the, that story, so it probably doesn't really, it's not earth-shattering to us. But what he's doing here is he's bringing forth the greatness and the majesty of Christ. He is making it clear to them that, that I, John, am totally and completely unworthy for this ministry. He's like us. He's just like us. He is saved only by grace through faith in Jesus. That's how all of these saints are saved. So what he was doing was disciples or students who served under a rabbi at that time, they took on the role of servant for that rabbi. 
They took care of all the rabbi's needs, like getting his food, preparing it, making housing arrangements. You see an example of this when Jesus sends his disciples ahead, go find a room, prepare the Passover dinner, right? This is sort of disciples are used to doing this. But the one thing a disciple was never to do, was never to be asked to do, the one thing that distinguished him from a slave was that he was never to touch or to take off the sandal of a rabbi. Not because the sandal was sacred, but because it was disgusting back then. It was really gross. It just was. And the thing is, it's not even all slaves were required to do this. Only the lowest of Gentile slaves. You couldn't ask a Hebrew slave to do this. You had to be the lowest of the Gentile slaves. So here's what John's actually telling them. He's saying, I I serve the Christ. It's not beneath me to untie his sandal. But the problem is, I can't. It's above me. It's above me. I am unworthy to perform the task of the lowest of low slaves when I see the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants them to understand. That's the attitude we all need in ourselves. We need to consider it an awesome privilege to serve Jesus in any capacity, any capacity, right? If we are grumbling, if we're always looking to somebody else or whatever it is, we covet their calling or their position or their giftings, it only hurts our witness to Christ. It's telling the world that there's something more important than Jesus, that we're more important. We need more, and we hurt our witness. What about John? Was John's witness effective at all in this moment? He claimed no important identity, no authority other than a slave in Christ and a pretty low one at that. And he simply continued to call these men to repent and prepare their hearts for Jesus. And you don't read in this text or the following text of any conversions. None of them sort of slip out of this crowd of leaders and say, I'm with John now, like I, I'm, I'm baptized me. Well, let's just take a quick look at our closing verse, verse 28. It tells us these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. There are two Bethanies in scripture. Uh, one we'll see later was Lazarus, Mary, uh, Mary and Martha, right? This is near Jerusalem. This is a different Bethany and it's made clear here. So that's not that Bethany. But this is a Bethany to which Jesus returns in John chapter 10 with his disciples. Uh, and we read this there in verses 40 to 42. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. See, John the Baptist never got to see the full outcome of his witness for Christ. For him, it just ended with getting arrested, thrown in a dungeon, and eventually executed for calling sin, sin. For calling Herod a man of power, to repent. But his effort was not wasted. And in God's perfect timing, his witness led many people to be saved. We have to remember each one of us is just a voice. We too are just a voice and we're just one of many voices that people hear every day. But if the word that your voice brings to the ears of people is Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, who offers forgiveness in life, Uh, to all those who follow him, if it points them to his perfect obedience in our place, his payment 
for our sins on the cross in our place, his resurrection, if it calls people to turn from sin and to trust in Christ for forgiveness and eternal life, then your voice may just be the voice God uses to break through the very hardened heart of a dying sinner and bring him to the joy and peace and eternal life that one only knows by following Jesus. You may never see the outcome of that, but nobody needs to respect me or to respect you. They need to know the Lord of Lords. They need to know the Savior. They need to know Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the lessons that you give us in your holy word, that it is truly timeless, that it comes and it, uh, it hits us sometimes where it hurts. It applies to each and every day, and it points always to the glory and beauty and majesty of your Son. Lord, we pray as we shift our hearts to remembering and honoring and worshiping Christ through the Lord's Supper, that we will remember your presence among us and what great grace and mercy you have shown us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.